I remember recently reading that VHS tapes can last about 10 to 25 years before they start deteriorating due to dust buildup and a multitude of other things. So imagine for a second that you have a VHS tape of Titanic, except obviously Titanic's been released on DVD and streaming and all that stuff, and it's been preserved, but let's say Titanic only ever released on VHS. You have 10 to 25 years after the final VHS tape for the Titanic releases, uh, before all of the VHS tapes that aren't kept in exquisite care will deteriorate and be unable to be played back. So, essentially, if people weren't actively working to preserve the VHS tape copy of Titanic that was the last one in existence, and it deteriorated, then we would no longer be able to watch Titanic. Now, let's take this sort of example here and compare it to video games. While cartridges last a lot longer than VHS tapes due to how they're created, same goes for CDs and DVDs and Blu-rays. What if we get to a point down the line, say 30 or so years from now, where NES cartridges start to degrade to the point where they are no longer able to be played? This is a reality we're actually facing. We don't know exactly how long cartridge games will last, but it's inevitable that all forms of physical media will eventually be rendered unreadable or unusable in some way. And that would leave us to lose the ones that aren't properly preserved. A lot of the biggest titles for NES and SNES and Sega Saturn and Sega Genesis and all of those older consoles, or like Atari, have been preserved and re-released in digital form over the years. But what about those really obscure NES games? Like, imagine, like, if there was an NES game about an obscure cartoon show that not a lot of people would want to preserve. Just a really, really obscure NES game that not a lot of people know about, not a lot of people care about, and most people would deem unworthy to be preserved. And what if you have fond memories of playing that game as a kid, and now all of the cartridges available are either bought up by collectors who are going to hold on to them until the end of their days, or have deteriorated to the point of being unplayable. The game is essentially lost, and that's where emulation comes in. Emulation acts as a way to preserve digital games that are backups of physical games in a way that allows generations upon generations to play them going into the far and distant future. And emulation is very frowned upon and looked down upon by the general gaming community um, as a tool of piracy when in fact it should be looked upon as a tool of preservation. Especially in today's day and age where we have companies releasing subpar emulation for a subscription fee that does not match the quality of the original in any way, shape, or form. Of course, if you've been following Nintendo news recently, you know that I'm referring to the Nintendo 64 online service. 
And this is what got me set on today's topic for today's episode of the Switched Podcast. I was thinking about how Nintendo 64 emulation on the Nintendo Switch is completely unacceptable. And at this point, we're lucky to have digital backups of every single N64 game ever released uh, that we can play on emulators or we can play on our Wii's and Wii U's or on our Switches, albeit at a much poorer experience than the original hardware. Um, Because otherwise, if Nintendo just keeps pumping out these subpar versions of their classic games, what if we did lose the physical copies of this and that's all we were stuck with is really, really poor emulated versions of games. And we really have a problem in society today with companies providing us with their backlog of games. In my personal opinion, the only video game company that is properly giving us all of the games that most people want to play is Xbox. And they have not reached 100% compatibility with all of their old games from original Xbox till now. But they're close enough that I think most people would agree that the most important games are being preserved. There's still the off chance that there might be, like, some random game about, like, a TV show or, like, a Christian a Christian video game that was packed in with a copy of the Bible that somebody got at summer camp or Bible camp. That could be lost forever because, obviously, they're not going to put in the effort to make that backwards compatible. But overall, Microsoft has done a really good job in creating their backwards compatibility layer and their emulation to allow their original Xbox games to be purchased and played for generations upon generations to come. Um, And Sony and Nintendo could learn a lot from that. Sega overall has done a very, very good job of it. They've sort of released collections of their classic games. And even the Sega Genesis Mega Drive collection on PC which comes with many, many, many titles for that classic system that I absolutely love, just allows you to open the files, and you can find the raw ROM files in the folders, and you can use them with any emulator you want. And essentially what Sega has allowed is it's allowed... They've allowed their players to purchase legitimate copies of the classic Sega Genesis Mega Drive games digitally, that they can hold on to and keep copies of forever. They've essentially released them from the binds of deteriorating physical media and eventually expiring digital rights management, aka DRM, by just allowing anyone who purchases them one time to have access to their games digitally as many times as they want for the rest of their lives. And Sega has done a really, really good job of this. Obviously, not every single Sega Genesis game has been backed up by Sega and is available to purchase, but the good majority of them have, especially the main titles that you remember for the Sega Genesis and some of Sega's other systems. And overall, I think Sega has probably done the best job out of any company in the gaming industry in keeping their back catalog playable and allowing their players to have freedom of choice on how they want to play them, whether it's from official emulators that they provide for a small one-time fee, 
or by just buying the games themselves and then getting to use them with whatever community-made fan emulator you want. Sega has done a very, very good job of this. Nintendo, on the other hand, has done an awful job. And Nintendo, as many of you know, is my favorite gaming company of all time. They have made some of my favorite titles, some of my most nostalgic titles I've ever played, and I've loved them my entire life, and I'll probably keep playing their games until the day I die. I'm a diehard Nintendo fan, and I'm not afraid to admit it, but sometimes it really is kind of shameful to admit that I'm such a big Nintendo fan as I am because they've proven to be so out of touch with providing their back catalog to players. Some of my favorite video games of all time are on the Game Boy and the Game Boy Advance and the Game Boy Color and the whole Game Boy line. And as it stands, the only system that has any sort of Game Boy, Game Boy Advance games at all and they're still available to purchase today, is the Wii U. You can buy a handful of Game Boy Advance games on the Wii U and play them just like you did back in the 90s and the early 2000s on your Game Boy Advance. That's the only way digitally you can play Game Boy Advance games today and purchase them legally today without giving money to just some third-party person who's going to scalp you on some Game Boy cartridges and there's only a small list of them on the Wii U, and there is some available on the 3DS, but it's very limited, and they sort of kind of kept it as a reward for people who purchased the 3DS early on. The N64 honestly has it even worse. I have been unable to experience pretty much any N64 games in my entire life because I've been unable to track down and find a reasonably priced Nintendo 64 with working controllers and working display out and all that stuff. So I've been stuck trying to find sources to purchase them from. And previously they've only had them available on Wii, Wii U, and now in a very, very subpar form on the Nintendo Switch. The Wii emulation for Nintendo 64 is the best that Nintendo's ever put out as far as official emulation goes but they only did a handful of titles. Same goes for the Wii U. It's been fine and they only did a, a handful of titles, but they messed some things up with the Wii U emulation and it's nowhere near as good as the Wii's and it's nowhere near as good as it should be to get that true original experience that you get from playing the original Nintendo 64. And it's really an issue. I'm such a huge Nintendo fan, but because of the fact that it's so hard to find official copies of Nintendo 64 games available on other platforms other than the Nintendo 64 and me wanting to get as true of an experience my first time playing through these games as possible I have basically played none of the Nintendo 64. I've only played Mario 64 a little over half of Ocarina of Time a little over a quarter of Majora's Mask and basically nothing else. I've played a little bit of GoldenEye at a friend's house when I was a kid. I've played some Star Fox on the 3DS, but it's not the same. And Majora's Mask I have on the 3DS, but I really don't like playing like console Zelda on a tiny little screen like the 3DS. I want to experience the original Nintendo 64 version. 
I even bought the Nintendo Switch Online Nintendo 64 controller because I finally thought I was going to have my chance to play it with an N64 controller in HD for a reasonable price. But man, oh man, was I fucking wrong. And we're going to get into that in today's episode of the Switched Podcast where I talk about emulation, why it has this horrible, horrible stigmatism about being mostly for pirating when it should be hearkened as the best way to preserve our digital games and what we can do to sort of make it better and preserve our games better as well as my idea of a utopian society where all games that are emulated are purchasable for a low asking cost and a low fee. On today's episode of the Switched Podcast, I bring you the emulation episode. Now, for those of you who are probably thinking, hold up, you've just talked for 10 minutes and I don't even know what an emulator is. Allow me to explain. Think of an emulator like Google Translate. And one of the languages you're trying to translate from is an old video game console, let's say an NES. And then you're trying to translate it to a different language, like your new fancy computer or any other multitude of devices that can use emulators. Uh, Google Translate, aka the emulator, allows you to take the code or the language of the game designed for the NES and translate it into language or code uh, that the host device, aka the computer that's running the emulator, or Uh, whatever device is running the emulator can understand. Um, And basically what that does is it allows you to run multiple different types of old games from multiple different types of systems on different machines um, by converting the game from a form that's compatible with the system it was intended to be uh, to a form that's compatible with your target system, a.k.a. your computer. And the way the emulators achieve this are kind of varied. There is high-level emulation, um, which is basically going through each game and making it work uh, to a basic extent and then fixing issues um, by creating patches and specific use cases um, in order to make it run fast and mostly correctly. Uh, It's generally the faster way to emulate things, but it's less accurate to the original. Um, And it has to be done on a game-per-game basis. So high-level emulation emulators are typically only truly compatible and playable with specific titles, um, but they take a lot less time to develop than low-level emulation emulators. Um, And low-level emulation is basically trying as hard as you can to recreate the feature set of the original device that you're emulating, um, thereby allowing you to more one-to-one translate everything. And it usually makes the emulation more accurate. Um, And then you can kind of base everything else off of that. Most emulators on the market use some sort of combination of high-level emulation and low-level emulation. Uh, to create the best overall experience um, because it would be fairly unreasonable to try to perfectly recreate 
every single aspect of a video game console uh, with low-level emulation when certain games or the majority of games for a system might not require all of the original features of the console. So that's why most of them kind of use a combination. Uh, some common emulator features as well include things like save states, save states uh, which allow you to create a snap a snapshot. God, I can't talk today. A snapshot of the game's RAM at any given time, uh, and you can reload it up at will, essentially allowing you to start, stop, and save and load the game at any point whenever you want. Uh, and it also allows you to do things like bypass the in-game saving um, or reset the game to the exact state it used to be at rather than uh, what we call a soft reset, which would be resetting after you save in the game and loading it back up. Because a soft reset will get you somewhat different results than a save state. Because a save state, you're essentially treating the game like it was never shut off where a soft reset it would be like your game was being shut all the way down and as much of the save data as they wanted to be written is saved but certain things are not and then you load it back up and that's how it works so there's there's benefits and drawbacks to both uh, save states have been considered kind of cheaty uh, but in my personal experience, some of the older video games from like the first couple console generations are exceedingly difficult. And if you're willing to lose out on a little bit of difficulty and you still want to experience these games, save states can be a godsend, especially for convenience and allowing you to beat games a lot quicker. Overall, I'm not super against save states as long as you don't abuse them too much. Uh, as long as you don't go into rewinding. And rewinding works in a very similar way to save states. Basically, the game uh, in most implementations of rewind and emulators is constantly taking save states every second um, or every frame even in some instances. And what rewind features and emulators let you do is basically go back through... A series of save states and rewind the game similarly to like a movie or a YouTube video or things of that nature uh, the Nintendo Switch online emulators have rewind functionality built in as well as save states um, and some other things that are included with a lot of emulators are upscaling capabilities of some sort for example uh, you can take a Game Boy game and apply a 2x upscale um, what that does is basically for one pixel on the screen it'll double it and it'll give you uh, four pixels instead so it's twice the size of one pixel so one pixel let's say it's a red pixel uh, will become four pixels in a square formation to equal that same red pixel and if you do that across the entire screen matching all the colors essentially you're just getting the game at four times the resolution or two times the resolution, however you want to look at it. Um, and upscaling and graphical enhancements are one of the main features that emulators have. 
and it's one of the main benefits of actually using emulators uh, because you do get that upscaling you can sometimes download texture mods depending on the emulator you're using uh, like the GameCube and Wii emulator Dolphin allows you to download whole texture packs and people have created HD 4k texture packs for Wind Waker and Mario Sunshine and Twilight Princess and a multitude of other games and they make the games look really really good and modernize them quite a bit and honestly some of the best experiences I've had with true to the original like remastered efforts for games made by the community have involved some sort of HD texture pack um, for a classic game. And when we get more into the specifics of some actual emulators, I'll talk about some of my favorite texture packs available. Um, and some other emulator-specific features, there's things like gecko codes or AR codes or cheat codes in general or patches. Um, and what they can allow you to do is anything from cheating in the game and giving yourself infinite ammo, infinite health, etc., 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 all the way down to like ROM hacking, which is basically a way to apply a patch to a ROM file uh, that allows you to completely change up or even minorly change up games in some way. The Pokemon community is very, very famous for having lots and lots of high-quality ROM hacks. Uh, and there's lots of improvement hacks like Renegade Platinum for Pokemon Platinum on the DS, uh, which just gives you the best version of the game. There's stuff like uh, Pokemon Prism, which is a all original an all original Pokemon game that's based off of Pokemon Crystal. Uh, that's really really good. ROM hacking can do a lot of great stuff. And then in addition to really complicated stuff like that, there's also simple patches uh, for things like adding 60 FPS support to games or adding widescreen support to games and a multitude of other things as well. I could sit here all day and list specific things. Um, and the only other thing that I can really think of that's super emulator specific is like plugins. Uh, the Nintendo 64 emulators of this day and age love its plugins. There's stuff that like can upscale your 3D models. There's stuff that can make you have like 60 FPS hacks. Plugins can do pretty much everything. And if your emulator has them, you should definitely look into them because plugins are very versatile. And most specific emulators have their own slew of special features as well, so definitely look into them if you decide to start trying some emulators out because you'll be surprised. Um, but there's other things as well, like some will let you record uh, gameplay videos from within the emulator where instead of saving it as like a video file exclusively, it can save it as a video file and a actual like emulator recording file which will let somebody play back the video on their emulator and it's actually running on the game's code and this is especially useful for like speed running and stuff like that so people can analyze and uh, figure out exactly how certain speed running tricks are done and speaking of speed running there's also um, stuff like frame by frame um, inputs for tool assisted speed runs where you can basically look at all of the uh, frames of the game which is like the individual 
screens that the game produces and put in sp very specific inputs in order to create certain effects and master the game or make the computer learn how to play the game, uh, which is very interesting as well. And overall, emulators are available on pretty much every device under the sun. Anything from like a DS to like a computer or the Nintendo Switch or smartphones. And I've even seen emulators on like watches or any multitude of other devices. People love making emulators for things. Um, and what they do mostly is stand to allow you to play games in a unique way or a new way usually with some graphical enhancements or some ease of access or any multitude of other things. Overall, emulation is a very good thing, and there's a list of some of the basic features that emulation allows you to have. Now, for this next segment, I want to highlight some of my favorite devices to emulate on as well as some official emulation devices that are available by the big gaming companies. Uh, so first off, let's talk about those. So Nintendo has released the Nintendo Entertainment System Classic and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System Classic a couple years ago now, and both of those are official ways to play a select number of titles from those corresponding consoles in HD on a TV off of a tiny little box. Um, they come with a controller that is molded uh, to be as similar to the original as possible. And in my personal opinion, it's probably the most official and authentic way to experience the original games for the NES and the SNES without having an actual old school version of the console. It's the best way to experience the authentic near original hardware version of these games. There are some issues corresponding to the emulation on the boxes, but it's nothing that I consider experience breaking. And if you want to shell out money and you feel like playing it officially, uh, you can't go wrong with the SNES Classic and the NES Classic. They're great little mini consoles. Uh, Sega also has the Sega Genesis Mini, and I've heard that's great as well. I'm not a huge fan of the UI of that one, but it is an official way to play all those games. Or you can buy the Sega Genesis Mega Drive collection on PC and on Switch, and I'm sure on the other consoles as well. And you get a bunch of games on there. And uh, the Steam version even has Steam Workshop support, so you can download mods, which is really, really fucking cool. I actually really like that. I could just go on and on about how awesome Sega is with their emulation and how the Mega Drive Genesis collection on PC straight up just has the ROM files if you want to run them on your own emulator. Sega does a really good job with emulation. Um, and honestly, the Mega Drive collection on PC is probably my favorite way to play Sega Genesis games, and I'm really glad I own it. Uh, there's also the... Sony PS1 Classic, I believe that's what they call it. I don't think they call it the PS1 Mini. I think they call it the PS1 Classic, um, which is in a way a way to play some original PlayStation 1 games. It's generally considered to be kind of bad and overpriced, and there is sort of a lack of some very crucial titles on there because Sony didn't feel like paying to get them licensed. Um, 
And I feel like that's a big reason, too, why we don't have an N64 classic, because it wouldn't feel the same without Banjo and Kazooie and uh, the likes of Goldeneye and other games like that. But uh, the PS1 classic, your results may vary. You can hack it and get more games on it. Not as good as the other mini-slash-classic consoles out there. And there's a multitude of other ones as well. I'm pretty sure there's a portable Sega Genesis uh, classic console and... I'm sure Atari has them. Atari loves reselling their old Atari games for cheap. Um, And I know there's like a Neo Geo classic. If you're into the Neo Geo games, I've personally never gotten into them. And a multitude as well. If you're interested in official emulation, there's a lot of different options. Even Nintendo has taken a swing at some, which is fascinating to say the least. Um, But what about some of my favorite devices to unofficially emulate things? Now, I want to specify at this point in time, I do not condone piracy. Buy, buy, buy every game you can. If it's available to you in a convenient, efficient, affordable, and fair manner. It's like that Gabe Newell quote that everybody likes to always reference says, if people are pirating your games, it's not because they don't want to pay you for them it's because there's a lack of a service that's easy to use and at an affordable price and that's kind of like a generalization of the quote it's not exactly what he said but in general i do not condone piracy there's a couple companies where i make an exception in my head but i'm not going to condone it to you guys uh but that being said If you do officially own in some capacity any of these games, some of the best third-party unofficial ways to emulate your video games are the following. The Sony PlayStation Portable, the OG PSP, has a lot of great emulators on it, and it's super easy to soft mod and get running. Um, You can do some really, really interesting stuff with it. And while I'm not a huge fan of the PSP in general, it's just not my favorite handheld. I'm a Nintendo boy, what can I say? A lot of people have them lying around, and they're a great way to get started with emulating some classic games if you feel like playing them. Um, The PS Vita, similar story, a little less easy to mod than the PSP, but the emulators in general are better on the PS Vita. Um, So that's something to think about, too, if you have those two lying around. My Nintendo 3DS has always been one of my favorites to mod because the 3DS has native Game Boy Advance support in the form of the virtual console for GBA uh, that was only ever released to very specific people. Uh, They released the virtual console for GBA on the 3DS and it's actually not emulation. It's a translation layer that allows the Game Boy Advance game's code to run on bare metal. So it's a form of emulation, but it's a lot more one-to-one, and it's a lot more accurate. Um, So something you can do on the 3DS with Game Boy Advance games that's really, really cool is you can make virtual console injects, which basically is a fancy term for creating your own virtual console games. And it works especially well with the Game Boy Advance Uh, But you can also do it for the Game Boy and the Game Boy Color and the SNES and the NES. Uh, You can run Nintendo DS games natively on your 3DS using Twilight Menu or 
N3DS Bootstrap, I believe it's called, or NDS Bootstrap, or something like that. Um, there's a lot of great ways to run games natively on the 3DS, and that's why the 3DS is still one of my favorite portables to emulate things on. Uh, another one that I really like to emulate things on is my phone. Cell phone emulation has come a long way, and if you have an Android phone, it's one of the best devices to emulate on. Not only does Android support Game Boy Advance and Game Boy Color through My Boy and My Old Boy, respectively, or if you're feeling more adventurous, there's Pizza Boy, um, which is a newer emulator that I really, really like. Um, there's also excellent N64 emulation on Android. Something about the way Android's uh, architecture for their processors are laid out make it perfect for N64 emulation. And I've had a lot better results emulating Android or emulating N64 on Android than any other device. Um, there's also a lot of quality of life improvements you can make with the Android N64 emulators as well. Uh, Nintendo DS is really, really great on Android through the Drastic, I believe it's called, emulator. Um, it's paid on the Android App Store, and while I do kind of have some issues with paying for an emulator, um, it was something that used to be done a lot more, and it is a very, very high-quality emulator. And you can even do, like, PPSSPP on Android, which, of course, is a PSP emulator. There's a lot of emulators for pretty much everything on Android, and uh, while I don't have one, one of the best emulation devices out there are the NVIDIA Shield TVs, um, because they can run anything up to PlayStation 2 and GameCube and Wii games, which is really, really awesome, so that's something to think about if you don't have a decent computer to run emulators on. Um, and I'm not going to talk about PC, but obviously PC will be one of your easier and better options when it comes to emulating games for everything. You can do, like, Wii U games no problem. It's like, it's a cakewalk to emulate anything on PC. And of course, I can't talk about emulation without bringing up the Raspberry Pi. Everybody's favorite little single board computer. What is the Raspberry Pi, you might be wondering? Well, the Raspberry Pi is a very small computer that you can buy online for $35 and it will emulate just about anything you want to throw at it up until PS1 and 64. And the Raspberry Pi has kind of stood the test of time as one of my favorite devices to fuck around with. You can do a lot of other things other than emulating on the Raspberry Pi. Uh, but if you download RetroPie on your SD card and run it, it's basically drag and drop to have set up for you a seamless emulation experience with a cute, like, easy to use, minimal front end and access to about any game you'd want to play on any screen you'd want to play it on. I fucked around with making portables before with the Raspberry Pi. I fucked around with connecting it to my TV. It can really do so much, and it can do more than just emulating, but you can emulate all the way up to N64 and PS1 on the Raspberry Pi 4B Plus 4 gigabyte model, no problem. Like, it can handle some really, really intensive but cool stuff. And while 
the newer generation consoles aren't a perfect experience on the Raspberry Pi 4B. It's still so good. And RetroPie with Emulation Station makes it seamless to set up and really easy to get working to the point where I am a huge fan of it. And I'm a huge proponent of the Raspberry Pi for emulation. Um, some other devices that are popular, if you feel like modding your Switch, your Nintendo Switch can play GameCube games on it if you mod it, which is really, really cool. Um, the Steam Deck will be coming out next year sometime. I don't know when I'm going to get mine, but when I do, I will be making a full podcast episode about it, I'm sure, so make sure you stay tuned for that. Um, and that's definitely going to be a beast. I can easily see that possibly being able to run emulated Switch games by the end of the day, which is so crazy to think about. And I know for a fact that's going to be able to run Wii U and Dolphin for GameCube and Wii emulation, no problem. The Steam Deck is really going to be my main emulation device after it arrives and I get to fuck with it. And I'm really, really excited. And I could probably do a whole nother podcast episode on my Steam Deck hype. Maybe I will when it gets a little bit closer to releasing, but we'll have to see. Um, but the Steam Deck something to keep an eye out for. Um, also, if you're on an Apple device like an iMac or a MacBook there is an emulator called Open EMU, which has a lot of different consoles supported, and it's one of the cleanest, most minimal PC emulators I've ever used. And it utilizes some custom code to have really, really good emulation for many, many different consoles, all in one nice, clean package. And it's really, really awesome. I hope someday open emu gets ported to windows because it's so nice and i used to use it on my school laptop all the time back in high school it's a really really neat software and it automatically uh grabs all of the box art for your emulated roms and it's a really seamless experience if you have an apple device don't sleep on open emu it's really really awesome um and you can hack a nintendo wii pretty easily or a wii u and run a whole multitude game a whole multitude of games on there as well um and i'm sure you can do a whole lot more with just about any device you have in mind i'm sure you have something around your house that you could emulate games on even if you're not 100 sure if it could look it up i'm sure you can and a note on that i want to give a little anecdote about me discovering emulation and trying it out on a computer for the first time Um, When I was in middle school, I actually discovered emulators through Android emulators for my Galaxy S2. And they were very, very handy. And I played the fuck out of some emulated games on my Galaxy S2, like all the Pokemon games and shit. Um, But it wasn't until I got my first laptop, which was this really crappy Dell laptop from like 2002. And keep in mind at the time it was like 2012, so it was very old. Um that I actually started properly emulating games on PC. I used BGB, a Game Boy and Game Boy Color emulator back then, um, in conjunction with ROMs for the Pokemon games and some third-party NES-style controllers that I had lying around um, to emulate a bunch of Pokemon games and play them with my brothers over the course of a couple different summers. We'd basically be huddled around my little laptop on the living room floor, 
two controllers plugged in, each linked up to separate emulators, and we'd be just playing Pokemon like it was our job, like constantly. And every gym battle, we would finish the gym and then battle uh, because BGB supported link connectivity, emulated over the computer's network. And it was really, really cool. And we had so much fun doing that. It's one of my most fondest memories with my brothers. Um, And I just wanted to share that little anecdote to say that if that little crappy laptop from 2002 can run emulation, so can pretty much any device in your house. So definitely go check out emulation and re-experience some of your favorite classic games. I want to touch upon the Nintendo Switch emulator Yuzu and how because of the fact that early copies of Metroid Dread and Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl leaked online and were playable on day one on the Yuzu emulator, a lot of people have the opinion that emulation is just used for piracy. There was some sort of insider at Nintendo who leaked Metroid Dread about a week before the game officially came out, and on day one of the game's release, it could fully be played on the Nintendo Switch emulator Yuzu on any compatible PC. The only way you could get this game is if you went and sought it out and pirated it yourself, pirated, pirated it yourself. Um, or if you had a copy of the game on your Switch and you backed it up using a modded Switch. Um, and the news articles that ran when this was found out were stuff like Nintendo Switch fans are pirating games and running them on emulators before day one, or Metroid Dread is fully playable in 4K day one on PCs using the Yuzu emulator, and these news articles were putting it up like the people who created Yuzu were specifically trying to pirate Nintendo Switch games and create sort of a market where people could play them for free, which is not at all what the Yuzu devs were trying to do. It does not fall on them when some bad people, a small group of bad people, get their hands on leaked copies of Switch games and play them for free. I think the vast majority of people are going to just legitimately purchase and play Nintendo's games. And Nintendo definitely, you know, is not seeing any hit in profit. The Switch has been their highest selling console in years, and they've been selling tons and tons of copies of all their games. Hell, Metroid Dread is the best performing Metroid game to come out ever. So I think it just goes to show that, like, the news article saying that, like, Metroid Dread's playable day one on an emulator. Go pirate it and download it now. This is a thing people are doing is kind of bullshit because, realistically, nobody's fucking pirating Switch games unless, A, they live in a country where the Switch is unavailable, B, they don't have any money, which they're not going to buy a Switch anyway if they don't have any money, Or C, they just hate Nintendo and they want to play the new games, which you can't stop those people from doing it. And Nintendo not giving their fans what they want is only acting as a catalyst for this. Because you'll notice that the PS4 is only just now starting to get emulators for it, and the Xbox One does not even close to have a single emulator for it. 
That's because Sony and Microsoft do a much better job of protecting their consoles from being hacked, and the fans have a lot less a lot less desire to actually go in and mod those consoles because those companies give them what they want. Nintendo doesn't let fans access its back catalog of games for a low asking price in good quality, which causes them to want to mod the consoles they get as soon as possible so they can play GameCube games on their Nintendo Switch or any Game Boy games they want. And those people, 9 times out of 10, probably are trying to play those games because they have nostalgia for owning them beforehand and they just want to re-experience them. I know for certain myself, I had a whole collection of Game Boy and Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance games and most of them got traded in when I was a dumb stupid kid so I could buy new Nintendo consoles and I've managed to reacquire a lot of the games that I've lost but any games that I emulate these days are either A, games that I can't actually track down because they're so rare and hard to find and Nintendo won't re-release them for me to purchase anywhere legitimately or B, I've already purchased them and if I was to go out and buy more used copies of them now, none of the money would go to Nintendo anyway. So rather than going and spending hundreds of dollars on a game I'm just going to play for a couple days and then forget about again, I'd rather just emulate it, play it for a couple days, and then go back to my business. And I already own the game at one point anyway. It's ridiculous to me to compare emulation to piracy and put them in the same boat when they are so vastly different. Emulation has always been about preservation and making sure games that are not commonly available to the masses can stay available to the masses into the far future. And a lot of these news articles by like Kotaku and some other gaming outlets portray these emulation enthusiasts such as myself as like pirates. But... I buy every single fucking game Nintendo puts out, and just because somebody in the company leaked the game early and some people downloaded it to try it out on the Yuzu emulator doesn't mean they went out and didn't purchase the game anyway. I, it's like Breath of the Wild, for example. I have played about 185 hours of Breath of the Wild on my Nintendo Switch. It's a copy that I got for Christmas in 2017 with my Switch that my girlfriend got me. And it's really hard to go back to now because my quality expectations have gone up greatly since then. And it's a 30 FPS game. And I want 60 FPS. So I already purchased the game. So is there really anything wrong with me downloading the Wii U emulator CMU and playing it on there at 60 FPS? 4k is there anything wrong with that because I don't really see anything wrong with that I already purchased the game and I can tell you for a fact that the vast majority of people who are emulating the more recent consoles are not doing it because they want to pirate Nintendo's games it's because Nintendo isn't giving them what they want and they've probably given their money to Nintendo in many more ways than one recently to make up for that fact it's just kind of crazy to me, and I know this part's getting kind of ranty and less informative like the rest of the episode has been, but all this stuff recently with Metroid Dread getting leaked and Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl getting leaked, 
in these news articles running stories like people are pirating Nintendo Switch games to play on their PCs using the Yuzu emulator early without having to pay it's like it's painting emulation in a really bad light and I really am not a huge fan of it So next, I want to talk about something a little more positive. This is a completely hypothetical section of the podcast, um, but it is a positive one nonetheless, because right now we're going to imagine a world where emulation coexisted with normal gaming. And the whole reason I created this podcast episode was because Xbox's Phil Spencer great 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 figure in the gaming industry and a huge proponent of a lot of things I believe in as far as gaming goes was talking about in an interview the other day how he recognized how important emulation in preserving our past titles is and he basically went on about how emulation itself is crucial in preserving and allowing players to play their favorite games from the past. And that was kind of the whole theme for this episode. And he said that, and I 100% agreed with him, and that's what prompted me to make this episode. I retweeted somebody's tweet uh, where they mentioned this interview exchange that was had. And I talked about my ideas for what the perfect utopian society would look like where emulation existed alongside normal gaming. So here's my idea for what could be done in theory to solve our problem of games becoming impossible to play in order to preserve them for future generations to play. My idea for this is basically a web-based storefront think like Steam or the PlayStation Store or the Nintendo eShop or, you know, the Microsoft Store all rolled into one that is completely based off of the web so you can access it from any device with a web browser, be it a smartphone or a computer or a game console or a tablet or any multitude of other devices. Um, And basically this website would act as a front end and a game store for classic video games. So, essentially, and and again, this is like a perfect utopian society idea, and it's very much a pipe dream, and it's not something that I see ever happening, but ideally, every video game company would come together, and this is already asking a lot, and allow their games to be put on this service. And asking Nintendo to do this would be completely impossible and completely not plausible in any single way, at least in the way Nintendo stands currently. Um, But Sony and Microsoft, and to an extent like Windows games, I could see this happening. I could see GOG even spearheading this whole project possibly because the stuff they've done with GOG Connect kind of starts to hit where this is going 
Um, but basically, they would all work together on the storefront. I think it would be good if they all had partial ownership in it instead of it being owned by one person and then they just kind of work together. I think each gaming company should have partial ownership in this company that operates this online web-based storefront. And basically, my idea is it would host all of these classic games in a playable emulated form um, through emulators that run off of modern web browsing software. Stuff like JavaScript and the likes, HTML5. Um, they can do a lot of really fascinating stuff with web emulators, and I know for a fact that basically up to N64 and PS1 are fully playable to an extent on the web. So, I don't think in a distant future this would be impossible. I don't necessarily think that it would be as easy to get, like, PS2 and up, like PS2, PS3, original Xbox, Xbox 360 games running off of a web browser-based emulator. But what we could do for that instead is have something similar to xCloud, where basically you can remote connect into a server running the games instead. And... Basically, the idea is, if all these gaming companies are working together on this, everyone benefits, including the gamer. Imagine if you could go on this website and purchase Game Boy games, Game Boy Advance games, uh, PS1 games, original Xbox games, old Sega Genesis games and Sega Saturn games, and any other multitude of games that you could want. And these are like classic games that can be played on any system and your library and purchases carry over to any system you want to play it on. And they all run off the web browser, so it essentially works on any device. This is sort of like my dream, and this is what I think would be like the best solution for this game preservation issue. I know a lot of people would have issue with the fact that the servers could go down at any moment, but I think if everyone was held responsible for keeping it online and expected to a certain extent to keep it working properly, then I think this would work out. That's why I don't think one company could own it and just work together with some other companies because companies are known to have falling outs and stop working together, whereas if each gaming company actually owns partial ownership of this service, then they would all be kind of forced to work with it in order to appease their fans. And again, this is very much a pipe dream, and I know many people out there would have issue with the fact that it's a web server and you're buying essentially digital copies of these classic games. Um, I know there's a good number of people out there who are very much for preserving physical copies, uh, which I'm all for, but when we're talking about emulation, you're playing them digitally anyway, so I don't think it's unreasonable to think that you would have to connect to the internet to use them. I think it's a fair trade to be able to play these classic games on any device at a reasonable price from all these different companies if you're expected to log on to a web server in order to play. So that's sort of the one drawback to this idea in my mind. 
Um, other than the fact that it's completely unreasonable and I don't think there's a single company in the world that would agree to join up on it. Just think of the possibilities though if you could do something like this. You could use any controller you wanted to play the games and any screen you wanted to play the games and through the power of owning them all digitally and be able to, being able to upgrade the servers instead of have to make a new console for every digital or every game that releases they'd be able to keep it upgraded and keep it working as time goes on essentially this would be very similar in essence to like google stadia and xcloud and any other cloud gaming service available right now um and it really is in my opinion kind of like the goal like the dream and it's super unreasonable <laughs> but i just thought i would share my thoughts on it um there's a lot of other things that would work as well but the problem is i don't think we can reasonably expect major gaming companies to sign on to re-releasing physical copies of every single game every single generation i don't think that's something that's going to be feasible so I think the only way to truly keep these games going without having the overhead of re-releasing them every single time a new console comes out is by doing some sort of cloud-based service or um, web-based emulation. And so that's sort of what my thoughts were on that. I really think that this idea would be really cool to see. It kind of seems like where Microsoft's going already with xCloud. xCloud is seriously so great. I wanted to play Forza Horizon 5 the last month or so, and in order to play it, I've been using xCloud. Well, I did it first at least, and then I used Game Pass for PC, which let me download it. Um, but I was using xCloud to play it and some other games as well, and it's really a quite good experience at this point, and it works fairly flawlessly. I was shocked to see how seamless it was to get working and how quick it was to get up and running it was just not that bad of an experience in my opinion and it worked really really well um and i really think other companies should follow suit sony has ps now and it's nowhere near as good and it has far less games and there's no backwards compatibility on the ps5 so they run PS3s in a server configuration to allow you to play PS3 games on the PS4 and PS5 using PS Now, and it's not great. It does not work anywhere near as good, and their servers are nowhere near as reliable as xClouds. It's kind of sad, honestly. Like, I could go from playing Skate 3 on PS Now and hating the experience and thinking it's so laggy to it being almost as good as having the game sitting in front of me on xCloud. That's how good it is. And don't even get me started on Nintendo. They, in a way, are kind of doing this whole cloud, like, online subscription emulation service that I'm kind of talking about. But they're doing it in the wrong way because the emulation is far too inaccurate and buggy and the online multiplayer does not work there's no reason why fan emulators should be able to do online multiplayer better than nintendo can and that's my personal opinion of course and i i could sit here and rant about nintendo all day but i really think the solution to game preservation and 
breaking this stigmatism about emulation being for pirates is some gaming companies stepping up and giving us proper emulation for a fair price, even if it isn't necessarily a web-based service. Just these companies should get together and start releasing proper emulators for their games that we can buy for a reasonable price. And I think that would be the best way to handle it. If I could buy, like, until recently, a good example of this was Castlevania Aria of Sorrow. Aria of Sorrow was one of my favorite Game Boy Advance games. And I used to have it a long, long time ago on the GBA, a standalone cartridge. And I lost it. I don't know if I sold it. I don't know if I lost it in a move when I was a kid. I couldn't play the game anymore. The only way I could experience it was by emulating it, and I loved it so, so much. I did eventually track down a copy of Castlevania Double Pack, but it wasn't until the Castlevania Advance Collection released on the Nintendo Switch that I realized I just kind of wished that every company would go ahead and re-release their games in the form of high-quality emulation, like... Castlevania Advanced Collection was on the Switch. The emulator that they shipped with the Castlevania Advanced Collection was really excellent, and the price for it was very, very good. 20 bucks for three amazing games in one different game <laughs> um, was a, ra- a really, really good deal, and I would definitely pay 20 bucks and a heartbeat just for Aria of Sorrow, so... I was hyped to be able to pay for that. I wish more companies would follow suit and release really high-quality emulated versions of their games like that. Like, if the Nintendo 64 games were released on the eShop as single releases for $5 each, I would buy, like, all of them. (laughs) But paying $35 extra on top of what I have been paying a year for all of them when I don't want to play all of them slash it's terrible emulation is just not worth it for me and that's kind of how I feel about that now for our next section I want to go ahead and talk about some emulators that I absolutely adore I have a guide up on my coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash Hyrulean called Hyrulean's Guide to Emulation, Uh, and currently it's up to date with my recommended emulators for pretty much every handheld I could think of that I actually play. Um, So if you want to check that out, go ahead and head on over there. I also am planning on updating it with my console emulator recommendations. Um, amongst some other things as well. It's mo- it's mostly focused on PC, but I do slip in some Android emulators here and there as well. Um, and it's got lots of good information and links and pictures, so you should definitely go check that out. Again, the link is ko-fi.com forward slash Hyrulean. Uh, and go to the posts section and search up Hyrulean's Guide to Emulation. Um, but In addition to that, I wanted to talk about some of my favorite emulators on here and really highlight how great the projects are. So that's what we're going to get into next here. Starting with Dolphin Emulator. Dolphin Emulator is hands down my favorite emulator I've ever used. 
It's got a slew of great enhancement features that make your Wii and GameCube games look even better and run even better on PC. Um, but in addition to that, it also is very, very accurate, and the developers are constantly working on it, and they're releasing monthly progress reports. And up until recently, there was only a handful of games that ever gave me any issue on Dolphin. Um, but all of those games have been fixed now, and in my opinion, Dolphin emulator is to the point now where it just feels like you have a small Wii inside your computer that can run any GameCube or Wii game you want. Um, and that game was Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets, in case anybody was curious. I used to play the GameCube version of that a lot as a kid, and I stand to this day by the fact that it's kind of like a hidden gem of movie tie-in games, and it's really, really solid, and it's really, really fun. Uh, Dolphin Emulator could not play it without audio glitches for some reason or another. Um, and within the last couple of years, they patched it up, and now it works flawlessly. And not to mention, you can use the GameCube controller adapter for Switch or Wii U and plug it into your PC, and it'll let you use GameCube controllers on Dolphin or DK Bongos on Dolphin if you feel like playing some Donkey Konga. Um, or you can buy a... Wii sensor bar or just plug your other Wii sensor bar into a regular Wii or use candles and it'll allow you to use Wii remotes on Dolphin emulator just like you would on the Wii and the Dolphin bar is what I personally recommend because Mayflash has done a really good job of streamlining the process because basically they built this Wii sensor bar specifically for Dolphin you can tell because it has a Bluetooth adapter built in, and the Wii remotes connect directly to the Dolphin bar, and it also acts as an IR sensor, and it's really the perfect all-in-one solution. So if that's something you're interested in, and you have some Wii remotes lying around, and you want to re-experience some Wii games, and higher quality with texture packs, etc., you can't go wrong by heading on over to Amazon and picking up the Mayflash Dolphin bar. I can't recommend it enough. And I use it for, like, Clone Hero and stuff, too, uh, because I have some Guitar Hero Wii guitars that I use for Clone Hero. Um, and I could do a whole separate thing about Clone Hero. I've talked about it before on the podcast, but it's, it's a great way to play Guitar Hero on PC, in case you were wondering. But anyway, emulators. Um, they also updated Dolphin recently to include support uh, of Game Boy Advance Link cables, so now you can either plug a Game Boy Advance link cable into your actual uh, GameCube controller adapter, or you can run a Game Boy Advance emulator, which the one that they have compatibility listed with is MGBA. And you can straight up just do the Game Boy Advance link functionality like you can on any compatible GameCube. It's really, really awesome. Um, and the Dolphin emulator is seriously just one of the best ways to experience Wii and GameCube, and I love it to pieces. So if you're in the market for a Wii and GameCube emulator, there literally is no other choice, and for a good reason, because Dolphin is just so damn good. And next up here is a little twofer for you. I'm going to talk about my favorite emulator for the Game Boy Color and my favorite emulator for the Game Boy Advance. Uh, so starting with Game Boy, Game Boy Color, we have BGB. And I talk extensively about this emulator and how great it is in my article, 
Hyrulean Guide to Emulation on my coffee page, ko-fi.com forward slash Hyrulean, as I've plugged a hundred times in this episode alone. Um, but basically, BGB is the de facto Game Boy Game Boy Color emulator because you can make your screen nice and big and it'll double the pixels for you or even eight tuple the pixels for you. Um, the sound is very good. It's a highly accurate emulator and it just flat out works. And the whole emulator itself is such a small file that you can just slap it on a flash drive with the entire library of Game Boy and Game Boy Color games that released in North America as ROM files. And you'll maybe use like less than half of a gig, maybe. Um, So it's a really, really good emulator and I love BGB. And in addition to that, uh, there's also MGBA for the Game Boy Advance, which also plays Game Boy and Game Boy Color games, but I'd honestly recommend BGB for those and let MGBA run the Game Boy Advance games exclusively instead. Um, But what exactly is MGBA? So as the name would suggest, MGBA is a Game Boy Advance emulator, and it's sort of in a similar realm to BGB. It's very accurate, very fast. You can double or even up to sextuple the pixels, I believe. I think sextuple is six, right? Because I'm pretty sure you can make the game run at six times resolution. Uh, There's link cable support, so if you've got a friend playing Pokemon uh, Emerald on their um, MGBA emulator and you're running, I don't know, Pokemon Fire Red on your MGBA emulator, you can actually make them link up like you would expect, or you can launch multiple windows on the same computer and load up multiple ROMs for different games, and you can trade with yourself, which is really nice. Um, That's how I got a lot of my save data from my actual emulator to my real Game Boy Advance uh, original hardware. I was playing Pokemon Emerald on an emulator and I wanted the save file on my Game Boy Advance copy of Emerald that I have because I wanted to play it in bed. Um, And it's a really, really long, tedious process, but basically I booted my GameCube into a homebrew launcher uh, using an exploit for um, Super Smash Brothers Melee that I found online, and it was this really complicated process, and honestly, it's like a hundred different steps. Um, but basically, um, what I found is if I uh, did a little trick in Super Smash Brothers Melee, I could boot into Swiss, and I could run a Game Boy Advance save game backup and restore tool. And so I restored my save data from my copy of MGBA, and I loaded it up onto the cartridge, and it worked just like I expected. And it was really, really nice, and I played it off my Game Boy Advance for a while, no problems whatsoever. And then I copied the save back off my Game Boy Advance and onto my 3DS, and I was playing my same game on my 3DS. And it was a really, really cool, nerdy emulator, emulation homebrew tool flex moment for me. It was really awesome. Um, And it all started with MGBA, and MGBA was so accurate that I could run it on original hardware after playing the game on the the Game Boy Advance emulator just fine because of how good the emulator was. So MGBA is seriously an amazing emulator, and I highly recommend you check it out.
Um, likewise as well, there's also Citra and CMU for the 3DS and the Wii U respectively. They're relatively new and you start to go into that territory of like, is it okay to emulate these games that just came out? Uh, which as we discussed in this podcast episode, yes it is. Both of them are also being actively developed very frequently. Uh, Citra is near perfect in most major 3DS titles and CMU is getting better by the week and there's new releases coming out constantly and it's probably the best way to play Breath of the Wild unofficially other than playing it on a Switch officially. Uh, You can run Breath of the Wild at 60 FPS. You could run it in ultra widescreen if you wanted to. You can run it at 4K. You can download graphics mods. You can download regular mods like making the game first person or switching your character to Zelda or Linkle if that's your thing. Um, And there's a lot of really high quality mods. And even today I saw a news article that some YouTuber put out a $10,000 bounty on somebody modifying CMU to make it multiplayer for Breath of the Wild, which was kind of insane to see. Um, So we'll see if that ends up happening, but lots of good stuff there, and that really does a really good job of capturing that era of Nintendo from those two separate emulators, and it's really, really nice to have. Earlier, I was talking about some of my favorite devices to actually emulate games on, and I mentioned the Raspberry Pi's excellent RetroPie operating system that you can download, um, which makes the process really streamlined for downloading and loading up games uh, from backups that you've legally obtained. And uh, it's a really, really good service, and all the emulators work really well, and it's fairly straightforward and automatic to get running. But what I didn't mention back then because I was saving it for this section right now is RetroPie is actually just a operating system that has Emulation Station running at launch. And Emulation Station is basically a graphical front end for another piece of software uh, that houses all the emulators. So Emulation Station exists, and Emulation Station itself is actually just a graphical interface for RetroArch or LibRetro. Um, and I guess RetroArch is technically another graphical interface. So LibRetro and uh, LibRetro is actually just a front end for a bunch of different types of emulators and you can develop cores for it. So it's basically a really complicated way of saying uh, LibRetro acts as a unified all-in-one emulator for many, many different types of games. It's nowhere near as uh, user-friendly as the separate emulators are. That's why I haven't recommended it up until this point. But I wanted to mention it because recently RetroArch, a popular front-end similar to Emulation Station for LibRetro, released on Steam. So you can go to Steam right now and for free download RetroArch. And RetroArch is literally a piece of software that when you launch it through Steam will open up this full screen interface to let you run emulated games. And of course you'll have to get the ROM files yourself and I'm not going to tell you where to go find them. Um, Google is your best friend but I'm not going to tell you because again I'm against piracy. Uh, But basically you can set up RetroArch and download DLC in air quotes. You can't see I'm doing air quotes because this is an audio only podcast. Uh, But you can download DLC 
for your retro arch installation on Steam, and the DLC is available for free. That's why I did it in air quotes. Um, for all these different types of emulators. So you can download MGBA uh, through RetroArch. You can download a different Game Boy emulator through RetroArch. Um, and there's a whole multitude of other ones as well. There's a Dolphin emulation core and a bunch of other things as well. But I wanted to bring up RetroArch because it's on Steam. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty easy to find if it's literally on the largest game distribution platform on the planet. So there's something to think about as well um, but there's some of my big emulators there's a lot more that I use that I haven't talked about yet and realistically the only systems you're gonna have issues emulating um, other than anything past the PS3 Xbox 360 era which those consoles are somewhat emulated but not anywhere near as perfect as like PS2 and original Xbox um, are things like the uh, Nintendo 64. Nintendo 64 emulation is pretty spotty on PC. And in general, Linux and Android have better N64 emulation support. Um, and then to an extent, um, I've seen issues with the Nintendo DS, the original one, not the 3DS, because the 3DS has Citro, which is perfect. But the original Nintendo DS has been kind of difficult for people to find out how to make an emulator for, and there's not really one perfect emulator for that. I discuss some options you can have on specific emulators to use on my coffee blog, which is the last time I'm going to plug it, I swear, at ko-fi.com forward slash Hyrulean. Um, but there's a couple options on Windows for DS and for Nintendo 64, but there's not one true definitive emulator, so I'm not talking about them in this episode. But other than that, I think in this episode we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about some of the biggest emulators out there. We've talked about why emulation is important for game preservation and has nothing to do with privacy or privacy, piracy, as people might lead you to believe. Um, and I really think that's it for you guys today. We've covered a lot of ground today. I think I got quite a bit of information out there in addition to the rambling and speculation and uh, fantasizing about a world where emulation is more accepted. Um, but hopefully this was a good episode. This is the first one I've gotten out in quite a while because I've kind of had podcast block after releasing the ghost of tsushima episode which i think is my favorite episode that i released in 2021 and then the horizon zero dawn review episode which was also very very good i was kind of scared and having trouble finding a topic or making an episode that met that quality that i've had recently with the ghost of tsushima episode and the horizon zero dawn episode um, and that's made it more difficult to record an episode. So this one, I know, is less quality than the last two. Um, and I gotta kind of get out of that mindset where I'm focusing 100% on quality. Because that's when I'll just stop working on this show. And I have so much fun working on it that I definitely don't want to do that. Um, but I'm in this really awkward phase slash rut right now. In between these game reviews of this year that I've really, really had fun working on. And put a lot of time into and my work on Project Ooh, which will be starting next year. If you missed the announcement 
uh, post on the podcast channel and on the YouTube channel and on my coffee blog, which I'm not going to plug again because I said I wouldn't. Uh, go check those out um, because next year we have a podcast-related project starting where I'm going to review every single episode of Adventure Time and Adventure Time Distant Lands as it comes out. So it's going to be a big project. Um, I'm excited to start working on it. And it's made it difficult for me to focus on making regular episodes until then because even after I do start the Adventure Time stuff, I want to keep making regular episodes because next year is going to be fucking huge for video games if nothing gets delayed. So my brain's just been running at 100 miles per hour for what to talk about on this show and trying to find high-quality topics to share with you guys. So I appreciate anybody who's following along with me and following the podcast on Spotify or subscribing to the YouTube channel or going to the coffee blog and following that even if you don't necessarily contribute any money to it because again it's not really about the money for me um but it does truly mean a lot and I've been having a lot of fun doing this show and I've been having a lot of fun just kind of ranting to you guys through my cell phone in my car while I'm driving to and from work that's what the show is all about um but man oh man I've got so many ideas for episodes I need to organize my thoughts I need to update my Trello board. I need to come up with new ideas for episodes before December. I know one thing in the chopping block uh, for episodes coming up that I do want to share is I will be having my 2021 or yeah, 2021 year in review, game of the year, song slash album of the year extravaganza. Uh, <laughs> which should be coming out sometime in December. I've already started working on my game of the year list, but it's been tough because I played a lot of games that did not come out this year this year. This was kind of one of my catch-up years, and I did manage to catch up on a lot of games that I was behind on. Um, But as such, a lot of the games that I've played didn't come out this year, and it doesn't feel right putting them in my game of the year list. But also as such, because I've been playing old games and not new games this year, I have a lot less games that I've played this year to consider for my personal game of the year. So I'm working out any of the little issues with that. I've got some ideas. I got the new Pokemon game sitting right next to me. I just went into Walmart and bought it. Uh, Brilliant Diamond, obviously, because diamonds are a boy's best friend. Um, But yeah, lots of interesting stuff coming up. Um let me transition to another segment here and then I want to talk about some other shit really quick before we go but this will effectively be the end of the podcast uh, if anybody wants to click off now so thanks for watching if you did Um, if you're going to stick around I'll see you in a moment but otherwise have a great day I'm slapping this in at the end of my emulation episode. Um, First off, I have been working on this episode, conceptualizing it for quite some time. I actually started recording it over a year ago and stopped because I could not focus on a specific goal and idea for it. And I hopefully think this episode ended up being more straightforward and kind of more streamlined thought-wise because when I tried to record this emulation episode before I was just kind of throwing up information about emulators and 
throwing up random rage at freaking people for talking shit about emulation and calling it piracy, and it really was incoherent. And I know I started to rant at one point in this episode, but hopefully we got some decent quality out there. Um, But yeah, this episode's been in production for quite a while, so if you made it this far and you made it to the end, I just wanted to say I appreciate you for listening in. I've tried to record this episode at least two, three times and not liked how it was going, so I just scrapped it. And this is the first time where I finished it up and thought, wow, okay, this is exactly what I wanted it to be for the most part, and I'm happy with this. So this final version is coming out to you guys, and I'm really glad about it. It's not as good as my Ghost of Tsushima review was. I think that's my favorite episode I released this year, so go watch that episode if you haven't yet because it's really, really good, and I'm really proud of it. Um, but I did enjoy making this episode, and I'm glad I finally got it out. But you may be wondering, why am I still here? Why is the episode not over yet? And I just wanted to sort of talk about and rant about my thoughts and ideas and sort of goals for this podcast. So the Switched podcast has always been about me talking about games and whatever else I'm interested in. And I've always had sort of the goal to work on reviews for TV shows, um, and now that's actually going to happen. And something I wanted to mention while I'm thinking about it here is I think I've kind of pinned down how I'm going to uh, create my Adventure Time review episodes without taking away from the main podcast and being able to find episodes of the main podcast in case for some reason you're not interested in listening to me rant about Adventure Time. Um, But basically, I'm going to record each episode's review separately and do like a couple episodes at a time as one podcast episode Um, because otherwise it would just be way too much because each episode's only 10 minutes long. So if I do like, you know, six episodes in one and that's an hour's worth of content that I reviewed and that could be shortened down to like, you know, a 20-minute podcast, maybe at most a 40-minute podcast. And I think that's probably a good way to handle it because that's one drive to work and one drive home to finish six episodes. Um, I'm going to really have to work on streamlining my review process and talking about very specific points, uh, which is where my spreadsheet comes in handy. Uh, If you didn't catch the announcement episode for Project Ooh, I'm going to release my spreadsheet for people to look at as well and see kind of how um, I'm reviewing the show. And you'll also be able to see my thoughts in a written form and see where I'm at on recording versus uploading episodes because I'm going to mark down when I'm finished watching and when I'm finished recording and when I've finished uploading certain episodes. Um... And this is really just an exciting time for me. I have been putting off making a television show review for so long. It's always been in the back of my mind as something I want to do. Uh, The other day I sat down and watched about the first five minutes or so of Adventure Time Distant Lands, the first episode, because it's about the backstory for a character from Adventure Time called Bemo, and it has nothing to do with the main series, and it's just backstory for the original show, Um, and my buddy Ethan recommended that I actually watch that first before I start watching the show, so I'm going to do that, and I'm going to talk about that 
in my first review, even though it's going to sort of be out of order. Um, but I have to say that little snippet of Adventure Time I got right at the beginning there has me so excited to start to start this series. I was laughing so much at the show, more than I expected to, and they've got some really, really good animation these days, so I'm really excited to see that transition in between, like, decent animation to the amazing animation they have now, but this is, it's a really exciting time for the podcast, it's a really exciting time in my life, and I just kind of wanted to share where things are at I plan on picking up Horizon Forbidden West in February and making that my top priority for games um, from that month going forward until something else comes out. Part of me wants to pick up Elden Ring and try it out, but I'm going to try to play a little Dark Souls 1 and see if that's actually something I'll be able to do or not, because the last time I tried to play a Dark Souls game, I played it for like literally a week and then I just quit, and I have not picked it up since, so... (laughs) I'm kind of hesitant to buy Elden Ring because of that, but I'm definitely getting Forbidden West on launch, and I'm going to be playing the shit out of that and reviewing it on the podcast. Um, I have Brilliant Diamond sitting next to me right now. I purchased it for myself rather than letting it be saved as a possible Christmas gift from my family because there's no guarantee I finish that game as well. I'm infamously terrible at finishing Pokemon games because I get bored about at the seventh gym badge or so usually but i'm going to try to finish that it's had very mixed reviews but i found that the pokemon games that get generally average reviews are the ones that i really like uh like pokemon x i played the hell out of that for probably about three four weeks and i never finished it because it's a pokemon game and it's against the law for me to finish a pokemon game but i really liked it And I was like, wow, this game's really fun. I wonder how it reviewed. And it reviewed terribly. Like, literally, it was so poorly reviewed that I was looking it up and I was seeing what people were saying. And I was like, wow, I do not agree with any of this. It turns out Pokemon fans just hate everything. (laughs) But um, I've got a lot of different games I'm playing as well. Another big review I'm working on is uh, the Nathan Drake collection for Uncharted. I finished Uncharted 1, and it's fully recorded, and it's fully reviewed, um, and I'm working through Uncharted 2. I'm about halfway through right now, and my goal is to finish Uncharted 1, 2, and 3 and have them all up in a single review before Uncharted 4 Remastered for PS5 comes out because I plan on picking that up and playing that when it comes out. but that's sort of where I'm at. There's some ideas for where my podcast is going, what reviews are going to be coming up, and uh, kind of what I've been playing, what I've been focusing on. I just wanted to share some of that stuff with you guys. So there we have it. Uh, thanks for watching the Switched podcast today. And as always, have a great day.